This week on the This Song Podcast, Arkansas-born singer-songwriter Beth Ditto talks about how she made her 2017 record, Fake Sugar, and how Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn helped her grapple with her complex feelings about her home state. I'm really connected to it. Like, there's a line that says, you don't have to live next to me, just give me my equality. And, like, I remember hearing that line and just being, like, it, just feeling something and just completely, I don't know, it just changed me. You don't have to live next to me, just give me my equality. You can listen to this song on KUTX.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. Once again, welcome to the Cactus Cafe. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. So we're going to be doing some fun things tonight, and one is we're taping a secret ingredient. So the, there's a podcast that I and Tom and Raj produce called The Secret Ingredient, where we focus typically on a food item or an idea and, and talk about kind of the history of that and the development of that. But tonight we're going to be talking about austerity. And so let me introduce these fine folks and then get going on the views and brews and the secret ingredient that we're taping this evening. To my immediate left, we have award-winning journalist, writer for Mother Jones Magazine, who writes on food and politics for Mother Jones, Tom Philpot, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Also, Raj Patel is an economist himself and teaches over in the LBJ School for Public Affairs. He's the author of a few books, one of which is called Stuffed and Starved. The other is The Value of Nothing. And Raj, we're very lucky to have you. Raj Patel. And of course, in the middle, our guest of honor this evening, the eminent economist. He was the uh, advisor to Yanis Varoufakis, who was the former finance minister during the Greek crisis. He is the author of many books, including the forthcoming Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. Be sure to grab that. When is it coming out? In June. In June. That'll be coming out in June before or after the, the Brexit vote? Before. before the Brexit vote. So, Grab that book and, and catch up on what's going on. And we are so lucky to have you here this evening. Dr. James Galbraith, thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be here. So typically I begin with a poem or a quote or a statement, but I would love it if you could read from your new book, um, from the final, final page of the preface, just to start us off and kind of ground us in the discussion. Okay, this comes after a few pages describing the history not only of the run-up to, uh, uh, to the crisis and then the five years of uh, depression that Greece endured before the election of the Syriza government in January of 2015 and its five months of uh, resistance before it capitulated in July of last year. And I, I write at the end of all of that, so what will happen? In economic matters, one is never entirely sure. Greece is a small country, and the deus ex machina of foreign investment, a tourist boom, a military crisis, or something else could always supervene. But on the most likely course, they won't. And so the Greek state, Greek businesses and households will continue on their downward trend, with tax shortfalls leading to spending cuts, loan defaults to foreclosures, and bankruptcies leading ultimately to a foreign takeover of the banking system. Meanwhile, the country will be transformed, its marketable assets and real estate sold out. 
Greece will become something much less like a proud and self-sufficient European nation, and much more like, say, a Caribbean dependency of the United States. Its professional population will continue to leave, and its working classes will also either emigrate or sink into destitution, or perhaps they will fight. In a world where so many countries have suffered this treatment, where outside certain charm circles it is practically routine, does it matter if one more small and distant place is added to the list? Perhaps not. But Greece is a bit closer to our sensibilities than other places. Its familiarity, its uh, link to the concept of democracy, its European identity are, for better or worse, distinctive. The place pulls at us. It evokes the words that Keynes applied to Germany in 1919. The policy of degrading the lives of millions of human beings and of depriving a whole nation of happiness should be abhorrent and detestable. Abhorrent and detestable. Even if it were possible, even if it enriched ourselves, even if it did not sow decay of the whole civil life, civilized life of Europe." Close quote. But I would add two more reasons, also weighty and honorable. And the first is that in the person of Yanis Varoufakis, the Greeks had for five months a spokesman of merit who could and did articulate their case and call it to the attention of the world. That's rare. And the second is that when they were given the chance, the Greek people stood up, they said no, and they were prepared at that moment to pay the price. This places an obligation, a moral obligation, on all of us to stand with them. Wow. <laughs> Jamie, I, I want to start um, by asking, I mean, I think a lot of people, the way that the story of Greece was covered in our media, I think a lot of people here, maybe even in this room, think, well, so Greece is a small country that took on a bunch of debt, and it couldn't pay back those debts, and so it had to have a reckoning, and the reckoning came, and it got what was coming to it, and that is the way that it should work. What is wrong, or what, how would you respond to that kind of statement? Well, everything is true up to the last um, couple of phrases. It, it is a country that took on a lot of debt. It was corruptly government, governed. Greece has never been well-governed. It hasn't been well-governed uh, since the Ottomans, and it wasn't well-governed under the Ottomans. Uh, it's been in default for half of its existence as an independent country. Uh, in the run-up to the crisis, it took on a lot of debt. Uh, that debt went, among other things, to pay for uh, the Olympic Games, to buy German submarines and French fighter aircraft, uh, to build construction projects that were taken over, uh, carried out by large European firms. Uh, that Those debts, uh, on, many of them were corrupt. Uh, they did not benefit the Greek people to any significant or long-lasting long extent. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the creditors were as responsible for those debts as the debtors themselves. They were uh, advanced onto Greece because they advanced the interests of the industrial powers of the north of, the, uh, of Europe, the Eurozone. Uh, the calamity when it occurred was a calamity of Greece, but it was also a calamity of Europe. It had a lot to do with the fact that Europe was designed on principles that of a confederacy, which we abandoned in North America in 1865, uh, and uh, that this is an unsustainable uh, form of uh, 
of uh, interregional finance. And finally, it happened in a crisis, which was a crisis of the world financial system, a crisis which emerged from the debacle of uh, subprime mortgage finance in the United States. Uh, so what happened was that our banks had sold those corrupt securities to North European investors who, when they uh, knew that they were facing large losses, they sought to dump everything else that they had, including the debts of the Greek state. So this is a, uh, a catastrophe which is shared in common. The Greeks are simply at the whip's end. They are the uh, people who are hurt the most in Europe uh, by the debacle, uh, and uh, it's uh, entirely, uh, it's preposterous really to say that the Greek population uh, has uh, a distinct responsibility for the fate that they're suffering. Uh, you know, this is like any population of ordinary people. They work hard and they are not involved in the decisions which are presently f bankrupting their businesses and forcing them out of their homes. Can I be a little arch, Jamie, and, and suggest that in electing Syriza, they, with a mandate to stay in the euro but to persuade Germany to do the right thing, that the, the, the Greek electorate were essentially asking pigs to fly. Um, I mean, you, if, if you stay in the euro and want Germany to be reasonable, those are two incompatible things. Uh, and the, the euro was essentially the noose around the neck of Greece. And what the Greek people wanted was to, for the noose to be fitted as a collar. Uh, they wanted to stay in the euro, but they wanted none of the, the, the awful trappings of being part of a, a central currency, which you, in, in your beautiful preface to this book, observe is, is obviously going to be part of a monetary union in which Germany is incredibly powerful and you know, rises like the Alps, and Greece is in some sort of valley. By asking Syriza to square, I mean, to, to, to essentially to, to break the euro in a way that fits Greece, rather than, say, abandoning the, the euro for the new drachma, which we'll get to in a second, uh, the, the, the Greek people were, in some sense, bringing upon themselves this catastrophe. If only they could, be, could have been persuaded to, to abandon the euro, things might have been better for them. Do you, do you agree? Uh, no, I don't agree. Uh, I arrived uh, in Athens on the 8th of February, which was the day the parliament opened, uh, and I... Uh, when I arrived at the finance ministry, the first thing that Yanis Varoufakis said to me uh, is, welcome to the poison chalice. That's the, the title of my book now. Uh, it's, uh, we knew the score. We knew this was uh, going to be an extremely tough uh, negotiation. We knew the odds were against us. Uh, we had a strategy uh, which was essentially uh, based on the idea that if we could do anything at all, we might be able to turn Angela Merkel uh, to her better side uh, and to, assuming she had one, uh, and that, uh, uh, that she would have it, see it in her interest uh, to uh, cut us, cut the Greeks some slack on the programmatic aspects that they were being uh, compelled to comply with, uh, knowing that those were disastrous, uh, and that uh, she would do this in the interest of preserving Europe. And, and preserving the euro. But it is the only way the euro in the long run could have been preserved. And as you can see, given what has happened since the capitulation in July uh, with the elections in Portugal and Spain and a considerably tougher attitude by the government in Italy uh, and restive, and, the, and now the calamity of the refugee crisis and its effect on Europe and, and the Brexit referendum coming up, uh, that the forces that are pulling Europe apart 
are uh, going out of control. Uh, so it was certainly, I think, the only thing to do at first was to test the proposition that we might be able to overrule the narrow economic interests in Northern Europe in favor of a larger political vision. Uh, we tried, uh, the Greek government tried, Yanis uh, Varoufakis tried, uh, and, uh, and did not succeed. But if he had not tried, we would never have known. You know, one thing, when we were preparing for this show and talking amongst ourselves, I said to Tom, I said, um, how did how did they how did the Shariza government ever get in power? They must have known that 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 they would cause a ruckus, that they would not just capitulate to the the Brussels, basically. And Tom said, "Well, democracy sometimes gets in the way of economic policy." But what Schäuble said to Yanis Varoufakis one time was, uh, "I will not let the vote." or democracy get in the way of economic policy. So can you take us back a little bit to kind of just f tell us how, how, does, how does economic policy in the Eurozone and in the European Union function? Do people, like you say, in Greece, you know, the people, they didn't really know what was going on, but when they did have a vote, they stood up and they said no, yet their voice wasn't heard. How does democracy function, and, or how does, how does economic policy function in the Eurozone? Well, the, uh, the European Union and the Eurozone is a confederation of democracies, uh, but at the European level, it functions in a highly undemocratic way, uh, and fundamentally, the decisions are taken in the finance ministry in Berlin. Uh, that is, I mean, Wolfgang Schäuble at the moment holds uh, the key to the economic policy imposed throughout Europe, uh, and it's only uh, uh, deflected to a certain extent by uh, governments that are so far still holding out and resisting full implementation of what he would like to see. So that's very much uh, the, the, um, the, the, the situation. Uh, what happened in Greece, of course, was that those policies which were put in effect in uh, May of 2010 proceeded to destroy three governments, the elected government of George Papandreou, the technocratic government of Lucas Papademos, and the uh, conservative government of Antonio Samaras. And as that process of destruction occurred, uh, the Greek people had a choice uh, between the Nazi party, Goldman, Golden Dawn, uh, and uh, the coalition of the parties of the radical left, which uh, was a group of uh, ex-communist militants, uh, trade union organizers, environmentalists, college professors, a group that looked very much like the audience in this room. Uh, and uh, not the sort of people you would normally entrust the government to. Uh, and it included, of course, a professor here uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, Yanis Varoufakis. Um, and um, the, um, the fact was that over that period, Syriza did manage to articulate uh, and was the only really left-wing party in Europe that succeeded in articulating a coherent alternative vision, uh, and the Greek people decided to buy into it. Uh, when I got there in February, it was an amazing scene. Uh, I've never been in a kind of, well, except maybe in Portugal in 1975, uh, a scene of, of such fervor. Uh, the government, which had been elected with 
a third of the vote had the approval of 80% of the population. Practically everybody who voted against them was in favor. Uh, walking around with, with Giannis in Athens, uh, you had the feeling that here was a guy with 11 million bodyguards. It was, it was an extraordinary scene. They were determined to, uh, to uh, display their solidarity with a government that was uh, pressing for a change uh, in the European dispensation. So the government had the advantage of a population that was united behind it. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the disadvantage of being caught in a policy mesh, which uh, essentially had no flexibility and ultimately a decision uh, by, the, by the European leadership not to tolerate uh, an independent left-wing government in Europe. So that leads to my next question, which is, in your introduction, you quote Keynes, and it's a very famous critique of Keynes um, that, that he wrote um, after, after the war in the 20s, I believe it was, 1919, about the destruction, about the sort of post-war settlement imposed on, on Germany. And um, the essay probably would, would have been pretty obscure and not remembered if it hadn't been so prescient and so many calamities rose up out of the situation of what was imposed upon Germany at that time. Um, the whole, you know, what happened in the 30s and 40s that we don't need to go into. Um, and you're, so, you're a very careful writer who chooses your words um, very carefully. And what, um, what are the implications in Europe of sticking it to the Greek working class, bailing out the bankers that floated the country, and making that working class pay for the mistakes of the elite? Like, what are the long-term implications for Europe? And how does that, how do we relate that to what Keynes was writing in 1919? Well, I think um, at the moral level, uh, these decisions have undermined uh, the uh, European project in a very serious way. Uh, and it will require a major effort uh, to save it if it can be saved. Uh, and that's uh, something which, uh, is reflected, I think, in the uh, election outcomes uh, throughout Europe. In the South, you have uh, a, a distinct shift to the left, uh, and again, Portugal, Spain, and it's also in Italy. Um, and in, uh, in reaction and in spite of the effort to cow those populations into not, um, not moving that way. And in the North, it's the right, which obviously the National Front in France and uh, various other phenomena, as well as in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe, you have uh, ultra-nationalist movements in Hungary and, uh, and in Poland. So uh, this has been uh, part of a say, loss of, um, of, of moral purpose for the European project, which has to be reclaimed. As an economic matter, it is, uh, Greece is a small place, uh, and this is uh, the dispossession of a small population from its, from its homeland. Uh, I wouldn't overrate the importance of that, except insofar as the broader economic policy in Europe is incapable of stabilizing the European economy. So this is part of a strategy which lacks the 
uh, automatic stabilizers working across national lines that we have in this country across state lines, the Social Security, uh, health insurance, uh, uh, food stamps, unemployment insurance. All of those things operate inside individual European countries, not across national lines, which means that the bankrupt countries can't are continually cutting them, and as a result, they're continually undermining the prospects for stabilization in Europe. And even Italy, a country which is 20% of the Eurozone, uh, has not retrieved its uh, operating level of 2008 at this point. Um, one of the reasons to buy Jamie's book um, is that there, there are, I mean, there, there are a number of things in there that are uh, just wonderful bits of writing. Jamie's rejoinder to the Guardian newspaper after a particularly egregious and ill-informed article. Um, chapter 19 uh, is one that I'll be teaching to my students, uh, where it's uh, Jamie's policy advice to a friend in the State Department. Um, one of the, one of the sort of mind-blowing things, though, is where Jamie talks a little bit about. Plan X, uh, which is to turn euros into the new drachma. Uh, and I, I, I wonder, Jamie, whether you, you might be able to talk about not only just the, the genius that you've, I mean, it's just a really clever idea of how it is that you get a new currency in a place that doesn't have one, that only has euros floating around in the central bank. But also, under what circumstances might it have made sense to break from the euro? Okay. Uh, as a bit of background, toward the middle of March, Yanis uh, asked if I would coordinate the work of a small group, um, none of them Greek actually, uh, to uh, lay out the um, uh, kind of plan of action uh, for the situation where Greece was compelled to exit the euro. Uh, and that uh, was a situation that could well have arisen toward the end of June. We knew, we knew how they timeline was going to play out. So we had a period of weeks uh, to examine to the extent that we could without letting anybody know what we were doing, uh, the, uh, the problems uh, and spell out for the government what they should be prepared for. Uh, some of those were uh, legal questions. What's the status, what's your status in the European Union if you exit the Euro? Uh, some of them were uh, questions about the administration of banking. Uh, some of them were about, a good many of them were about the logistics of getting a new currency in a country that did not have a printing press. Uh, and uh, some of them were about social stabilization, making sure that you had fuel, food, uh, adequate medicines, that the insulin for diabetics, things that you couldn't go without. Uh, obviously, we couldn't implement that plan because uh, that would have required bringing in a much larger net of people and we couldn't have maintained security. But we could at least have spelled out the problems. A big problem was that at that time about 85% of Greek pensioners drew their pensions through the ATMs in the banking system. And you had to face the possibility that those ATMs would run dry. Uh, in which case, uh, you know, this was, this was daunting because you have people who are very fragile. Uh, and they need food on a regular basis. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, this was not something, a step that we were ever going to recommend. Uh, we were providing a kind of preliminary uh, battle plan, if you like, if the government was forced into a corner from which it could not escape. Uh, the, uh, obviously what happened happened. The government uh, chose not to, uh, to risk it. Uh, the, uh, 
question of whether it would have been a good idea at the time, I think it's a very tough call. It would have been, it could have been, it could have destabilized the government. On the other hand, when capital controls were imposed by the diktat of the European Central Bank in uh, June, the Greek people reacted with astonishing calm. Uh, and uh, it was clear that they had prepared themselves for some tough periods. Uh, and so the mood in Athens was amazing. It was, uh, it was, uh, uh, remained wholly supportive and uh, essentially undisturbed uh, in this period. Um, that's why the Greek people voted 61% to refuse the terms. Um, and uh, with the working of capital controls over time since then, the banks have uh, greatly extended the use of debit cards. So the technical problems of transforming a currency into another currency have become, I think, much less than they were. You would still have a big problem of stabilizing the value of the thing, uh, and that has implications for inflation. Uh, but uh, it would have it would be easier now, except for the fact that the government is a colony and doesn't have any independent will and is not going to take that step. So this is not going to happen in Greece. It might happen somewhere else in Europe. Uh, we know a lot now that we did not know then about how to make it work. But you're you're burying the punchline though, which is that I mean the. the as you say, when capital controls are introduced, there's all of a sudden you produce two different kinds of euro, the euro that circulates freely and the euro that's trapped in the central bank. Um, and in one of the fantastic essays in this book, Jamie talks about how it is that you transform old, you know, stuck Greek euro into a new drachma. By stamping them. Well, uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you have the paper stock, uh, you can obviously just put a, a, a Greek D, a delta, on this, and it becomes. That's what the Czechs did uh, when they when they Czechoslovakia broke up. They took their old currency and stamped it and put that in the ATMs. Uh, so that's that's a, ter a perfectly possible step. Uh, at the time uh, that we were, I mean, as we did not know what the paper stock was in the hands of the Bank of Greece, which we also didn't have any control over. And it takes a long time to print new paper. It would take some time, yeah. and that, that was a problem, because you, people who are reliant on paper need to have it on a regular basis. I didn't want uh, you know, elderly people to be without currency for two weeks. It's a problem. I want to ask you about something that you wrote into one of the final proposals, which is a program that's equivalent to what we have as food stamps here in the U.S. But another reason to buy Jamie's book is because... <laughs> I promise you this is not an advertisement tonight, but but one thing that I that really struck me about reading the preface to it and when in our conversations before was the way in which the idea of what it meant to be Greek was used by the European elite to justify a lot of the policies and a lot of the, the rhetoric and how they were going about um, declining a lot of the proposals that you and Yanis and others were, were giving them during this process. And, and so it's kind of underlined, but there is a process of racial formation that's going on in this whole European Union project and Eurozone project. And I'd like you just to comment a little bit on your experience with that and some of the conversations that you might have had with people about that. Well, it's very definitely true in European politics uh, that there is a great deal of, um, let's call it ethno-racial stereotyping on national lines. 
Right? And so the Greeks are treated as a category, uh, and uh, they were referred to at the outset of the crisis uh, as the grasshoppers of Europe, who were basking in the sun and enjoying themselves while the hardworking ants of North Europe were doing all the, the heavy lifting. The truth of the matter is that while Greece has a very weak economy with no substantial industrial base and it's largely an economy of, of small shops and so forth, uh, the Greeks worked longer hours uh, and uh, uh, longer working lives than, than the North Europeans do and they get fewer vacations and so forth. Uh, so uh, the, the, the image is entirely false. Uh, but the fact is it plays in, let's say, uh, the German or, for that matter, the French uh, electoral space because the Greeks do not vote there, and uh, it's easy to characterize the outsiders. I mean, this is not unknown in the United States, right? I mean, it's a, uh, uh, both re with respect to racial minorities and with respect to foreigners. Uh, so, uh, but you can see this uh, playing out along multiple dimensions, and even at the professional level, uh, in the period before the Syriza government, Yanis and Stuart Holland, a former British Labour MP, uh, and I uh, collaborated on something we called the Modest Proposal, which was a series of four major ideas for reforming the Eurozone. Uh, and at one point on one of them, Yanis was told by a high level, uh, I think German, that, uh, uh, that the, the idea was very good, but it could not uh, be offered up with a Greek accent. Uh, so you're... Uh, you, you can see that this is that when he turned up uh, in um, uh, in Brussels, um, speaking by the way, of course, in English that uh, is certainly superior to mine. Um, the uh, uh, that uh, he inflicted a certain degree of cultural shock on his um, stuffed shirt and empty suited finance minister colleagues. And so, could you tell us a little bit about the, the food stamp program that, that you instituted? Was it in the Modest Proposal? This was in yeah. the Modest Proposal as a, it was actually the one thing that I contributed to the Modest Proposal uh, in its final edition was the idea that there should be at the European level a nutrition assistance program uh, that would uh, go to the most vulnerable households throughout the Eurozone, but especially in the crisis countries, and especially dealing in Greece with uh, uh, the, the use of food as a political weapon. It was being used as an organizing tool by Golden Dawn, by the, by the Nazi party. Uh, so this was something that was both urgent from a humanitarian uh, point of view and uh, useful from a political standpoint. Uh, one thing the government did, I think actually the first thing that it did uh, when it took office in February was to enact a uh, basically a nutrition debit card program which uh, provided 200 euro a month to a number of, of very vulnerable Greek households uh, and helped to stabilize the, from a nutritional standpoint. And that was one thing that at least initially was not, um, was not uh, canceled in the, uh, in the capitulation, so it may still be operating. How is the Golden Dawn using food as an organizing tool? Oh, by, by feeding people, by, you know, basically just by providing soup kitchens and that kind of thing uh, as, a, as a device for, for attracting political support. It's, when you're dealing with hungry people, this is often quite effective. And Jamie, can you give us an idea of where we are now in Greece post-capitulation? And also, I want to hear 
about the anti-austerity movements in other parts of Southern Europe, in Italy, in Spain, and so on? Well, what has happened, uh, n what is happening now is, um, it's, I said in this short passage, uh, a process of liquidation and dispossession. Uh, the uh, Greek state is having its assets privatized. The uh, Greek courts are being pressed to speed up bankruptcy proceedings for Greek businesses and opening up the Greek uh, uh, commercial space for uh, foreign investors. It was one of the of the hobby horses of the IMF and others that the Greek pharmacy businesses be opened up to North European chains, for example. Uh, and Greek households uh, are pressed between higher taxes and cut pensions and, and, and disappeared incomes so that they are increasingly defaulting on their mortgages and therefore their properties go into foreclosure. And so uh, you have, a, as I say, a systematic process of dispossession, a land grab. That's what is, the, it's not a policy for economic recovery. And even its architects understand that and will admit that in private. It's a policy of, um, of uh, forced dispossession. Uh, and uh, just recently, uh, the government was obliged to name a uh, commission on privatization whose chair and one other member out of five uh, is to be selected by the creditors. So they're giving away control over the process of uh, fire sales of all public assets in Greece, and that includes all of the coastline, which is a public asset in Greece. 15,000 kilometers of the most beautiful coastline you can imagine, uh, and essentially any part of it now uh, can be put up for sale to any uh, commercial interest that wishes to uh, make a bid. Uh, and that is, uh, a, you know, given that this is the one country in Europe uh, which had the California model of public access to the coast, uh, and which gives it its very distinctive quality. This is uh, really nothing short of a crime. Uh, it's nothing short of a crime, and if it invites resistance, uh, that resistance, in my view, is entirely justified. It's really something which, which, which is, uh, as I say, a, a development of uh, shocking character. Um, Jamie, the, the Welcome to the Points and Chalice is not the only book that you've published in 2016. Um, and I, I, the Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know uh, came out earlier on today. And for, for listeners at home, uh, they won't see that, that Jamie is wearing a Bernie uh, badge. Um, uh, I, 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 I wonder, Jamie, whether, whether you could talk a little bit about uh, what it is that you see, uh, I mean, wh whether you see these sort of parallels between your, your work in Greece and uh, particularly around inequality, your work in the United States. Oh, there's a very close parallel. Uh, when I got to Athens uh, in, uh, in February, one of the first things I saw in the Greek paper uh, was a headline uh, that had this word in it that I recognized because the word was Vermont. Uh, and <laughs> they, uh, the photograph underneath the headline was one very familiar face. It was Bernie Sanders speaking up for the Greek cause, something which brought him nothing politically, uh, but which was an act that was very uh, 
deeply noticed and appreciated by the Greek people. He was the only senior American politician who, who, who weighed in. Uh, he actually called Yanis early on before, as Yanis said, before he knew who he was. Uh, so there's a deep uh, uh, feeling of solidarity there. Uh, what's happened, of course, in this country uh, in the time since uh, is that uh, we've, we've seen that the basic program that, that Bernie Sanders has uh, been offering has an enormous uh, um, resilience uh, and enormous uh, uh, uptake in the American public, particularly younger people. Uh, when you talk about the problems that they face in their lives, uh, a, a higher minimum wage, um, a reliable health insurance system, and debt-free access to higher education, uh, you put those things together and you have something which, uh, as I say, resonates very heavily with a large part of the population and for good reason. It is at least something to aspire to and uh, that I think accounts for uh, uh, Sanders' enormous strength, unexpected by everybody including him, and very likely evidenced in Indiana tonight, we'll see. <laughs> and, um, and you, and I think it was in your preface that you read, you made a connection between the subprime banking meltdown in the United States and what happened to Greece. And the banking meltdown has become an issue in the election. And you've got Bernie, Bernie Sanders, who criticizes Hillary Clinton for being too close to the banks. And tease that out for us. How, how would the banking sector, how, did the, how has the banking sector become a major issue in this election? And what is Bernie's analysis of it? Well, I think it's um, not a secret that after uh, the banks melted down in 2008, 2009, they were rescued and nobody else was. Uh, and uh, not only that, but you had a consolidation of uh, the failed uh, mortgage originators like Countrywide and the f many of the failed banks like WAMU into uh, brokerages like Merrill Lynch into the existing bigger banks. So the banking sector emerged from this more concentrated and powerful and less functional than ever before. So we have a clear problem of governance. It is necessary in a democracy that the government be powerful enough to regulate the banks and that the banks not be in direct control of the government. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, unfortunately, the reverse of the situation that we actually have. Sanders sees this. Um, there are a number of steps that can be taken, uh, but the most important one is to uh, reduce the scale of banking institutions and break them up uh, so that they are there are more of them. Uh, they are at least somewhat independent and run by people who are not themselves individually big enough to run the government. Uh, and that, uh, you know, you can do that. And uh, that is, uh, there are provisions in law and regulation and precedent that make it possible to do that. And that's what should be done. And has there been a politician in your, in your lifetime who has sort of challenged the power of the banks. And because if you look at the parallels, the, the, the European banks and American banks who made all those loans to, to, to Greece essentially got bailed out and the burden of the debt was put on the people of Greece. In the United States, the, the banks that made the, the, the bad loans got bailed out and the burden was put on the homeowners and the people who owned the bad mortgage, owned the homes that had the bad mortgages. Um, and that's just sort of how it went. And, um, and in your lifetime, is, has a politician challenged that kind of political power? 
Well, when you ask about my lifetime, you're I know. forcing me to reveal the extent of it, which is... <laughs> uh, but the, the truth is that uh, in the uh, political formation under which I grew up, in the, in the Kennedy and Johnson era, and up until the mid-1970s, and I was a member of the staff of the banking committee in the House of Representatives when this uh, debacle got underway in 1980, um, the banks were not that powerful. Their, uh, the New Deal had disciplined the banking sector. They were under the uh, dispensation of Glass-Steagall, so commercial banking and investment banking were separated. For much of this period, investment banks were partnerships, and they were relatively small. They didn't have 25 and 50,000 employees. Uh, and uh, the banks themselves uh, and the savings and loans were um, effectively regulated. And during that period, uh, we had a reasonably prosperous balance between uh, the, uh, the banks, the corporations that they funded, the trade unions that organized the workers uh, who worked for those corporations, uh, and a larger civil society. Uh, what has happened in the 20, 30 years since, 35 years since 1980, uh, is that uh, they, uh, all of the other sources of power have weakened dramatically, and this includes actually corporations, but trade unions and civil society have been largely wiped out. Uh, and the, um, uh, um, the effect of this is that you have a banker-dominated uh, political culture, and the banks, the banks and finance provide the fund major funding for major political campaigns, uh, and they, uh, in their in the matters that are important to them, which is to say whether they can draw on state funding for, uh, to save themselves if needed, uh, they have uh, basically a hammerlock on, on, on uh, matters. And this, uh, this led to an enormous frustration after 2010 when it became clear that, that the larger population was not being assisted uh, by the uh, bailout measures and to the rebellions that are going on now. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, is, is part of that. Um, we're going to open things up to questions soon, but I'm going to break with our format really quickly, and I'm going to ask Raj and uh, James you a question, because one thing that is very divisive is whether or not Britain and Greece, or anyone for, for, for a matter, should stay in the Eurozone. Should Britain exit the Eurozone? That's the Brexit vote that's coming up on June 23rd. So Tariq Ali, uh, an activist and journalist, thinks they should exit, right? It would be a good thing. Whereas Yanis Varoufakis thinks it would, you know, cast Europe back into a, a postmodern 1930s kind of style of, of, of civilization, and Slavoj Žižek, another philosopher, said, no, 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 it would be much worse than that if Britain exits and if Greece exits, and it would be, you know, pre World War One. So, what are what are these? What are your ideas of whether or not Britain should exit the eurozone? Should Greek Greece exit the eurozone? What is moving forward? How? Wh where do you see kind of a light at all within this framework of the European Union and the eurozone? Well, uh, uh, to, to be clear, Britain isn't a euro country. I mean, it, it still has the British pound, and the the question before <clears throat> the British public is whether they should stop being part of the European Union at all, uh, and. Jamie and I were having this conversation just a, just a few weeks ago where I, I'm, I'm more inclined to, to press for exit. Uh, and that's in large part to, uh, as a way of reclaiming sovereignty uh, in, a, 
in a, I mean, in a way that uh, politics without guarantees. I mean, there's there are horrible right wingers in Britain, of course, um, and they they're uh, you know, they're sort of pushing for an anti-Europe uh, European vote is based on xenophobia. But the reason Tariq Ali takes a very dim view of Europe is precisely because of the kinds of bonds of financial control that. Uh, suit your Britain and suit your British capital into the into wider European circuits. Then I, I I'm not sure that that European that Britain has benefited from, uh, and certainly the people in Europe who benefited from it tend to be the bankers that Jamie has been fighting all along. Uh, so my you know uh, although there have been a few very useful things that have come from being members of Europe, like the European Court of Human Rights, um, that has tampered some of the more sort of crazy moments of, of British public policy, particularly since, I mean, of which there are many, obviously, but, but, but you know, Britain, a country without a constitution, uh, finds its constitution within the European uh, con uh, sort of Court of Human Rights. Um, I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all for kicking the bankers out. Uh, and but I'm, a vote for Brexit has to come at the same time as grassroots organizing for a for a, for a better alternative. You can't just vote Brexit and hope for the best, um, because otherwise Zizek is right. But if you vote for Brexit at the same time as organizing for something better, I think you're, you're in with a good chance. But that, that's, why, you know, that's why Bernie's a good idea, it seems to me. It's, it's, it, that, that kind of organizing for something better has to be integral with the rejection. Otherwise, you know, just saying no is, is, is not enough. I, I must say, I've had a very open mind on this question uh, and heard arguments on both sides, but I'm now persuaded uh, that uh, England should vote to stay in the European Union. Scotland will certainly vote to stay in the European Union, so uh, England should as well. Uh, it should not give um, a boost to its own uh, far-right forces. It should not give a boost to the National Front in France or to the uh, nationalist uh, uh, right-wing parties in places like Poland or Hungary. Uh, and a, a vote to exit would definitely have that effect. On the banking question, I have to demur slightly. I think some of the, it's, it's possible that some of the very worst of the deregulated bankers uh, on the European scene are actually English and would not uh, be, uh, with all due respect, uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, no and would, not, taken. would not unfortunately be uh, adversely uh, or pushed out of England by, uh, by England exiting the, uh, the European Union. Uh, so uh, it's also important, it seems to me, for the progressives of the English uh, speaking parts of Europe, of, of Britain in particular, to be engaged with uh, the reconstruction of the European economic scene. Uh, this is obviously not the, they're not, as you say, in the Euro, uh, but in order to save the European Union in the long run, the monetary and economic policy dispensation has to change. Uh, and it has to change in a way which is constructive that actually restores the functioning of the European economy rather than um, splitting apart the units of Europe. What happens when you break up a large political entity that is also an integrated economy is that things fall apart. Uh, that happened in Yugoslavia, it happened in the Soviet Union, uh, and you get a precipitous fall in production and living standards. 
And that would be, uh, I think, well, it's obviously something nobody wants to happen, uh, but it would also have, if it did happen, very serious and unpredictable political con uh, implications in Europe. I mean, I can sort of see a Europe emerging with Britain having exited, Germany having taken over the sort of heart of Northern Europe, Southern Europe exiting and falling away and coming back to its own currencies, and then the old power relations and divisions and tensions that obviously riveted the continent, you know, sort of tore the continent apart two different times in the 20th century, returning to the fore. Is, I mean, is that one, one thing that we're possibly looking at? With, with, Germ with German aggression and German sort of this idea that Germany should dominate, um, come to the fore in, in Northern Europe? Well, Germany does dominate now. I, I noted before the show that it's possibly not a, uh, one of the world's lighter ironies that the German finance ministry is located in Goering's uh, uh, air command. Uh, it serves much the same function. Uh, the, uh, um, but I think it's, one should not overrate the possibility of returning to an overtly, an uh, open military conflicts in Europe. I, I, that would strike me as, uh, as, as uh, very unlikely. What is much more likely, uh, well, what is happening now, is that you have a, a evisceration of the independent economic life of, of much of Southern Europe. It's not recovered at all uh, from the crisis in 2008, in many ways not, not for a decade and a half. So it's, uh, it's really deeply problematic. Uh, and that has, the way to change that and to, uh, is uh, I think along the lines that Yanis uh, and Stewart and I proposed, uh, you, you need to have an investment program, you need to have an extension of social insurance, uh, you need to be able to deal with insolvent banks and break this link, toxic link between bankrupt banks and bankrupt governments. Uh, and you need to have a resolution of the European debts uh, that is done on a, on a, on a general basis. Uh, and if you did those things, you would then buy some time to reconstruct European institutions in a viable way. But then, Jamie, uh, I mean, uh, you and Yanis and Stuart wrote that, uh, but Yanis is now organizing a far-left group that is you know, trying to bring together post-austerity you know, groups throughout Europe. And I mean, it, I, I, you I call it a far left group, but it's, no, I, I, it, it, it I, I, favors I, I, democracy. No, exactly. Is that I'm, such a far left idea? You, I, you're, you're saying <laughs> I, I, I think far left is good. <laughs> um, so, so, but but but, but I, I mean, I think I think it's important to, to, to recognize that actually you seem to be endorsing my position that you need you know, just to imagine the breakup of Europe and then chaos is to be very short sighted. And Yanis isn't. He's he's organizing for what comes next. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about what comes next, either for, well, for the, what Yanis is doing or for what happens the in the United The first objective of, of the Democracy in Europe movement uh, is to reform and, and restore the, uh, the viable European institutions. And a first step there is to take some of the really appalling hodgepodge of uh, unaccountable and uh, bureaucratic governing institutions that Europe presently has uh, and open them up, give them uh, uh, serious uh, exposure to the public, exposure to oversight from 
European Parliament and national parliaments, do some things actually that I was involved in with respect to the Federal Reserve in the 1970s uh, to set up accountability and to make uh, records and transcripts available. These are basic steps toward having uh, a, a more responsible governance and one which is less directed by the, let's say, petty internal politics of each European state and masked from the European public, which was what doomed the Syriza initiative was the, the fact that, you know, you were, there were the threat, the right-wing government of Spain was afraid of Podemos, the right-wing government of Portugal was afraid of the Bloc Izquierda, uh, the right-wing government of Ireland was afraid of Sinn Féin, uh, and for these reasons, and the right-wing governments of Eastern Europe were afraid of conceding anything that might suggest that what they had been doing was wrong. Um, and so th these, these, th these were uh, decisions that were taken that affected Greece that have dis are destroying Greece, but had nothing to do with any belief that they, uh, that they would be good for the Greeks or the Greek economy. Well, it's almost seven, so let's open things up for questions and uh, take a few from the audience really quickly. I know you guys must have a lot going on. One of the less ethnocentric criticisms of Greece was that if people paid their taxes, if businesses paid their taxes, that they wouldn't be insolvent. How accurate is that? Uh, Greece has never had uh, an effective way of taxing some of its richest people, uh, and that is because uh, the uh, oligarchs have run the government. Uh, and, you know, they have, so you have a, um, for example, ship owners are not effectively taxed. Many people are not effectively taxed. Uh, there are and were ways uh, that the finance ministry had uh, and has that uh, could have begun to uh, uh, claw back taxes due from some of the wealthiest uh, uh, Greeks, not necessarily tax evasers, but people who had never been liable to tax, they should have been. Uh, the Troika, which was in bed with the oligarchs, prevented the Greek finance ministry from implementing those measures. So it's not as though the, you have this you know, uh, disciplined and virtuous force coming out of Brussels uh, that uh, uh, was imposing a rigorous tax regime on an unwilling uh, radical Greek government. On the contrary, uh, the leading, um, the leadership of the European Commission at that time uh, and now is in the hands of a man by the name of Jean-Claude Juncker who has spent his entire career building up Europe's largest tax haven called Luxembourg, of which he was the prime minister. So for him to lecture the Greeks on uh, the um, importance of a virtuous tax administration was really one of the more Kafkaesque aspects of the, of the entire uh, debacle. Another question? Yes. Um, there's a lot of parallels between Puerto Rico and Greece, and how would you like to see the Puerto Rican situation addressed? It's an excellent question to which I don't have a fully uh, formed answer, but the practical problem that uh, Puerto Rico has is it doesn't have access to bankruptcy protection. 
Uh, and so it needs to be able to write down a share of its debts and to protect, preserve public services uh, so as to be able to have a chance to stabilize and grow its economy uh, if uh, Puerto Rico is handed over entirely into the hands of uh, its creditors, uh, it will, of course, that what will happen is what will happen, which is a, a liquidation uh, and a general impoverishment of the island. And that is something that is contrary to the broader principles uh, even of, of municipal bankruptcy in the United States. Can you just talk through really quickly why it's a, why it's a bad idea in general when you've got an economy that is not growing, that's in fact shrinking, that's got huge debt burdens to impose austerity on that economy, to say that we have to cut back government programs, we have to uh, slash pensions, we have to slash salaries. Why is that a recipe for, for just destruction? But, oh, because it cuts the income of everybody who would otherwise be contributing to servicing the debt. Uh, and so it makes the debt burden much more onerous. The Greek debt was about 100% of GDP in the... 2008-2009, it's about 200% of GDP now after six years of austerity. Uh, so it's completely counterproductive uh, to force the policy um, uh, regime uh, that was imposed on Greece um, and not to have restructured and written off a large share of the debt back in 2010. Uh, why wasn't the debt written off then? Because Angela Merkel uh, wanted to protect the German banks and uh, uh, was it Hollande or Sarkozy at the time wanted to protect the French banks. So utterly straightforward, they, uh, they transferred the debts of the, uh, fr of, the, uh, of the Greeks from their banking sector to their taxpayers. They forced a lot of European countries poorer than Greece to share in taking on that debt. And they pretended that the debt could be paid when they knew it couldn't be. Uh, and so uh, they, as a condition and as a punishment for the Greeks, they imposed the austerity regime, which they borrowed from the IMF, which imposes the same damn thing everywhere, in spite of the fact that it has no record of success. Uh, and they all recognized that this was a sham. They all recognized it. Uh, one of the reasons the IMF got in uh, was because it, uh, sensible countries around the world were rejecting its advice. South America, by that time, had paid off its IMF loans, was no longer participating, and because uh, if you um, want to become president of France, it's a good thing to be uh, in the good graces of the French banks, and the managing director of the IMF, a man of impeccable public ethics named Dominique Strauss-Kahn, uh, <laughs> wanted, wanted to be president of France. That's clear. It's clear, and, and, and there was testimony to that effect before the Greek Truth Commission from a French economist who had been a special assistant to the uh, president of the European Commission at the time. Another question? Um, I guess a lot of these questions involve the, the nature of money and the license of the banking system to create money. So the question is, what would democratic money look like as opposed to banking system money? Well, that's a question that often takes me the better part of a semester to work, th <laughs> work through with my students. But it, it, it is true that uh, banks create money, and they do so under public charter by making loans. This is not a bad thing, uh, but it depends whether it's a good thing depends upon what the loans are for and under what conditions they're extended. And if they are extended in such a way that, that basically they, they can't be paid or that they destroy the value 
of the housing stock of the country, as was true here in the 2000s, uh, then you have a calamity, which is what happened. The other way that money is, uh, is created is by the government writing checks, basically to your bank deposit. And your, your, if your, your wage comes from the government or your social security payment, that is money created in your bank account. Uh, and that is uh, something which, uh, a balance between those two uh, sources of, of, of money creation is a good thing in an economy. Uh, it is not, not a good thing for the government to be entirely in balance if the banking sector is forcing everybody to function on credit. Another question? Yes, I have a question for you, uh, Mr. Galbraith. I am Greek, first of all, and this is a personal question. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel after the resignation of Mr. Varoufakis in after the referendum in June, in, in, in August? Because he resigned afterwards, so, and you and him and all your staff actually supported his uh, moves into and the negotiation. But after that, everything was over, and Alexis Tsipras, the president and the minister, the prime minister of Greece was left alone. How do you feel about his moves after Mr. Varoufakis' resignation? Well, I, the beginning, I left Greece the day after. I was with Giannis on the day he resigned, and I left Greece um, the day after. Uh, and needless to say, uh, personally speaking, I was exhausted. Uh, we had, uh, this was a, a very tense time, at the same time a very inspiring time, uh, because in the run-up to the referendum, nobody really knew how resolute uh, and determined the Greek people would be. We had some sense of it from the reaction to capital controls, uh, which was calm and determined uh, when we thought it might be. It could have been panicked, but it wasn't. Uh, so we knew we were dealing with a population that had uh, maintained its uh, uh, it's, it's equipoise, it's, it's, it's sense of political balance and determination. That was quite inspiring. Um, then, as you say, Yanis uh, resigned because he knew that in the aftermath of the referendum, the government was going to capitulate anyway, uh, and that that decision, in fact, been taken, it became clear that decision had, in fact, been taken quite a long time before. Uh, so that was obviously uh, a... Uh, disappointing. Uh, I am not inclined to judge political decisions taken by uh, authorities in somebody else's country, uh, but uh, it's obviously leading now to a situation in which uh, there is no political alternative available to the Greek people, uh, no viable one, certainly no honorable one, uh, and uh, you have a government that was uh, once uh, a symbol of uh, progressive ideals and, and clear thinking, uh, which has become the, uh, essentially the instrument of a colonial administration uh, in which no decisions are taken uh, by the government itself. Uh, all they can do, perhaps, is drag their heels uh, somewhat on the pace of uh, of dreadful measures that are being dictated to them from the outside. Uh, and uh, it will eventually, uh, you know, as I say, fall to the, to the Greek people uh, to find some other way of expressing um, the, uh, the cry for justice in this matter. Uh, my hope 
uh, it, I, actually, it's not a situation which I think admits of much hope, uh, but to the extent that it does, my hope would be that elsewhere in Europe, uh, the example uh, of uh, that the Greek people gave uh, over the course of the first half of last year will inspire others, uh, and that there will be a progressive uh, uh, rejection of um, dysfunctional, destructive policies, and that this will eventually happen in countries that are large enough uh, to be um, uh, to 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 withstand the pressure. Uh, Spain and Italy, uh, and if that happens, then perhaps there will be a revival of uh, a chance to reverse some of the damage that's now being done to Greece. Uh, two more questions. Uh, do you think that Varis, uh, hit, or Giannis's, um outspokenness on social media platforms such as his blog kind of limited his strategic options because he was so antagonistic to European policy? That's an, uh, you know, an interesting question. Uh, Giannis uh, obviously got to the finance ministry. Uh, it's not often that a visiting professor at the LBJ school gets called in on a situation like this um, because of the extraordinary effectiveness of his political voice uh, in, in Greece and in Europe. I mean, here was someone who was uh, really unique in being able to address both the Greek people in their own language uh, and uh, the European public in an utterly lucid and compelling and highly informed uh, English. Uh, and uh, to have, in a sense, the, uh, both, both stages. Uh, yeah, but it is true that that came with uh, an immense vulnerability, which is that once he, took, he became the finance minister, he was a magnet for media attention, uh, which was, in many cases, intentionally or unintentionally uh, adverse, uh, and, and lots of, of, of the celebrity press and so forth. Uh, and uh, that certainly uh, created a situation in which he became the lightning rod uh, for the Greek government, which uh, in the end of the day uh, uh, was, I think, a substantial reason why uh, uh, the, what we called the troika of the interior formed in the uh, cabinet, in the internal cabinet of, uh, of Prime Minister Tsipras uh, and uh, Fundamentally, uh, the decisions that were finally taken were not the decisions that Giannis would have taken uh, uh, as uh, uh, finance minister in full command of his own portfolio. One last question. So back to the U.S. for a minute. Is there, you see any bridge between the, the cynicism of the Sanders support and Trump's support? I don't think the Sanders supporters are cynical at all. Uh, I think this, the, the Sanders campaign has been predicated to an extraordinary extent, unusual in my lifetime, on uh, a, a shared sense of what has to be done. Uh, and so I think that what will happen, uh, whatever happens in, uh, in November, is that we will see the growth and development of a movement along those lines. Uh, that's what I hope will happen. Uh, and that can begin. Beginning, by the way, with the, with, 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 with the Democratic Convention uh, in July, which is going to be an important test of uh, the will of the 
party and of its delegates to declare themselves on important national issues, on the minimum wage, on health insurance, on uh, college education, on the banks, uh, on a whole range of questions which, uh, where the party really needs to have a declarative, strong, forceful, and uh, forward-looking platform, something that people can believe in. Thank you. So I know we've kept you over a little bit tonight, but before we close, I'd just like you to let the audience know about your familial connection with Greece, because your father had a relationship with Andreas Papandreou and that goes back a little ways. And maybe you can tell the anecdote about um, his uh, conversation with LBJ. Oh, well, this is an old, old story, but uh, uh, my father... Uh, probably got to know Andreas Papandreou when Andreas was uh, a rising economist in the United States, certainly by the, the late 1950s uh, when Andreas was chairman of the economics department at the University of California at Berkeley. And my father, of course, by that time thoroughly installed at, at Harvard and writing some of his most famous books, they were on uh, familiar terms with each other. Uh, and Andreas then went back to Greece and um, launched on his political career, which was interrupted uh, in April of 1967 uh, when the CIA-backed colonel's coup occurred and Andreas was arrested. Uh, and the um, news uh, carried a report that he was going to be shot. Um, and as I've often said, at, at that time in the economics profession, the ex execution of a professor was considered to be something quite serious. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, so the, his colleagues from Berkeley and Northwestern and, um, and Harvard and um, Minnesota um, all had the same idea, which was to call my father and see if he could get a hold of President Johnson, uh, which at that time uh, was difficult because uh, Dad had become the leader of the anti-war movement, uh, and so he and Johnson were not on... Uh, no longer on very close terms, but uh, uh, at midnight uh, he decided he really had to do something. So he called the White House, uh, Jack Valenti uh, uh, responded, uh, and they agreed to, uh, Jack uh, Valenti agreed to take up a half-page memorandum to the president who was still awake in the, in the uh, uh, family quarters. Uh, and, um, well, Johnson then called Walt Rostow, another uh, later on great figure at the University of Texas here, and said, what do you know about this man? And Walt said, well, he's not a very nice man. And when he left uh, Berkeley, there were a lot of unpaid poker debts and, and many angry women. You know? <laughs> and according, according to Walt, Johnson looked back at him and said, it's not a reason to kill a man. Uh, at any event... Two o'clock in the morning, uh, a phone rang in my parents' house. Uh, my father was awakened by, uh, the, uh, by Nicholas Katzenbach, who at the time I think was Assistant Secretary of State for West European Affairs. And Katzenbach said, Professor, I just received a message from the president, and I would like to read it to you verbatim. And the message from Lyndon Johnson to John Kenneth Galbraith was, 
Nick, uh, call Ken Galbraith and tell him I've told those Greek bastards to lay off that son of a bitch, whoever he is. <laughs> Incredible. Well, you know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, and I sincerely hope that you will come back and join us at the Cactus Cafe for a secret ingredient taping here at Views and Brews. But for now, thank you so much, Dr. James Kenneth Galbraith for joining us tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. Also, thank you to Raj Patel and Tom Philpot for joining me on stage tonight. You guys are awesome. Thank you. And our next Views and Brews is next Tuesday night at 7, when I'll be joined by rabbi and jazz historian Neil Blumoff. We'll be talking about jazz and the art of war, along with a full band. So it'll be a little different scene, but very exciting. So please come out and join us for that. In the meantime, catch up on all of the archives at iTunes, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you for coming out. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening. KUT always puts you first, even during a public health crisis. The highest priority is to deliver accurate information to you and to this community, and it's listener support that makes this critical work possible. Give today at KUT.org. And thanks.